I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. We continue our series this morning on the book of Romans. We're getting into the second part of chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. This whole Roman series is focusing on the truth that transforms uh, from God's Word. And since you've been sitting for a while, I would ask maybe as we uh, get ready to read God's Word together that um, in recognition of uh, how God speaks to us, that we stand in reverence for His voice in our lives. Before we do that, let's uh, pray together. Pray, We pray, Father, to use Your Word to touch our hearts and that we... Um, through your Spirit, receive what you want to give us today. Lord, just as Paul longed to give something to Rome, we know that you long to give something to us. And Father, uh, may that longing be fulfilled. May we have ears to hear, and may we have, when we go from this place, mouths to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. From God's Word, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 1 of Romans. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. Excuse me, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to talk to you for a moment about a whole bunch of crazy people that I know. They're special in so many ways. Something happens that just makes them go crazy. Like, they all of a sudden lose all rational thought. They act bizarre. They act weird. They do things that they've never done before in their lives. And it's just, it's, it's always interesting when it happens in someone's life for the first time to watch how the insanity begins. I'm talking about grandparents. When people become grandparents, they lose their minds just a little bit. At least I've seen it. I've seen it in my own family. I've seen it in many of your family families. But when you 
become a grandparent for the first time, often you turn into a babbling, goofy, silly, crazy person that you've never been before. You start speaking baby language again. You start doing things for this new grandchild that you would have never done for your own children. You start to give them things, gifts. You give them food that they would never have had if they were children in your home. All of a sudden, you're a person who buys Oreo cookies. You would never buy Oreo cookies before. Now all of a sudden you have grandchildren and your grandchild likes Oreo cookies. Well, every time they come over, you're going to have a stack of Oreo cookie bags because that's your grandchild. Now, the really interesting thing for grandparent, watching grandparents is if grandparents don't live in the same zip code or even state as their grandkids. And I've seen this, I think of even the Vanderwalls. The Vanderwalls are a good example. They have, they have grandchildren right now in New Jersey. And I think they're young, how old is the youngest of Casey? One years old. I remember that was right near the end of the school year last year when Amy uh, Vandestreek is her name. She had her child, and it was like Kathy was ready to sprout wings and fly. She could not get to New Jersey fast enough, longing to be with this new grandchild. And it's like all of a sudden, life is consumed by wanting to be with that beautiful little baby. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, we hear a little of that sort of passion. That passion to be with, that passion to be present with, to get to know more, to interact with. Instead of being a grandparent for a grandchild, it's Paul for a church. He uses words here in this section of the text that has and is captured, captures that same sort of idea that Kathy and Mark had to go to New Jersey and wanted to see their grandchildren. That many of you, you just can't wait to spend time with that child. So let's begin by looking at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported over all the world. Now, this is a church that Paul loves and he longs to be with, and it's interesting that he says some of the things that he says here because he praises God for all the church. Now, what you and I don't always remember is that Paul actually wasn't well-loved by all Christians. In fact, there was a whole group of people that he got upset with at different times, and those people are called Judaizers. In fact, if you look at the book of Galatians, for example, the book of Galatians is a whole book specifically countering the ideas of these Judaizers. And Judaizers are people who say, if you are going to be part of the way, Christianity, then you are someone who needs to live Jewishly. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe the cleanliness laws. You need to observe the dietary laws. You need to do all those sorts of things. Well, Paul had a problem with that, and so he ended up writing to the Galatian church to counter that idea. In fact, they had a synod in Jerusalem to decide, no, that's not how we're going to do things. 
Well, there's Judaizers in the Roman church. There are Jews who have been in Rome, and they are still people who believe that you need to live like a Jew, even though you are becoming a Christian. The fact that Paul praises God, gives thanks to God for all of the Roman church, says something about his attitude towards them. He's not just praising God for the people that he likes or like him. He's praising God for all of them and what God is doing in all of them. He also praises them for their faith. Now, why would he praise them for their faith? Well, things hadn't been easy for the Roman church. In fact, this letter, when this letter was written, historically, six to eight years before this letter was written, the Caesar of that day had expelled all Jews and Christians from Rome. So six to eight years before all of this, you couldn't be a Christian or a Jew in Rome and still be legal. You would have been exiled. You would have been kicked out. In fact, when Paul was in Corinth doing his missionary work, he ended up running into a lot of the Christians that had moved there for a time from Rome to get out of the persecution in Rome. But by this time that Paul is sending the letter to them, new Christians have sprung up, and some of the people who used to be a part of the church had gone back. So if you've gone through six to eight years of persecution, exile, you've been in many ways a nomad moving in and out of Rome, you know, leaving your home, coming back to your home, leaving your work, coming back to your work, you can imagine some of the challenges that would have faced these believers. So when Paul is praising them for their faith, he's saying to them, in the midst of all this turmoil, all this craziness, all this stuff that has gone on in Rome, you've been faithful. And you've been a blessing, not only to each other, but then also to the whole church. Because we've heard about you. And we've heard about, even though times were tough, you stuck it out. You followed Jesus. You were faithful. So when Paul's praising them for their faith, he's praising them for sticking through all the challenging stuff that they face. Verse 9 and 10 say this, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Now, I don't know what your pew Bibles have. I think there's some diversity in translation. I was reminded of that this past week of the pew Bibles in your pew. Uh, but if, if you look, you see Paul says in verse 9, whom I serve with my whole heart. And when we read that word whole heart, we, in English, again, it's a nuanced translation. It's, Paul is, the translators are saying, Paul is saying he really longs to be with them with, with all of his feelings, with all of his passions. And that's fair. Again, this is a fair translation. I don't ever want you to think when I bring up some of this stuff that I want to teach you that I'm, I'm saying your translations aren't good. I, I want you to be able to trust them. But there's more going on here because the word that's used here to describe whole heart is actually pneuma, pneuma. 
If you remember, Rob Bell had the videos a while ago called Numa videos. Numa is actually traditionally translated spirit. So when Paul is saying that he is praying for the Roman Christians, he's praying with his spirit. Now it's interesting that he would use that word. Because why would he say that he has a spirit, especially in light of how we understand humanity in relation to God? We understand the Holy Spirit. We don't necessarily understand our spirit. Well, here what Paul is doing is he's uniting his heart and will with God's, which is that ever-present witness. He says, as God is my witness. Well, God is his witness. Why? Because God is present with him in his whole heart through the pneuma, the spirit. And he's basically saying here that there's Because God's spirit is present with him, when he obeys that spirit, he understands that what he thinks, what he wills, if he is united with God in Christ through the spirit, that he's doing God's will. As he is more and more obedient to Christ, he can trust that what he is hearing God speak to him, how he is seeing God lead him, is in fact the spirit's needing. Now, also at this time, Rome is a far church away from the rest of the churches. Like I said last week, several weeks, even months to travel to Rome. But Paul's never been there. This is a church that was probably planted by Peter. So since Paul has never been there, and he's the great missionary, he's actually received some criticism from others that he hasn't visited the Roman church. But what he's saying here in verses 9 and 10, I wanted to, I want to, I long to, my whole heart longs to. However, since my whole heart is in submission to the spirit which is present and is my witness in my heart, that that has limited me because God has said thus far, no. He knows, Paul knows, that because the Spirit hasn't opened the door, it's not Paul who said, I'm not going to go to Rome. It's God who has said, you're not going to go to Rome. As we submit to the Spirit, as it, we are united with Christ in obedience, we can trust that God's will will lead us what to do and what not to do. And Paul is affirming that thus far, God has said not to go to Rome. But certainly, if you know your New Testament in the book of Acts, you know that eventually that's going to change. Now, even it's interesting how he talks about prayer. This prayer that he is praying before God to go to the Roman church is a pleading prayer. It's almost like throwing himself at the feet of God, almost wailing, wailing, please let me go, please let me go. The power of that word is very, very clear in the text. He desperately wants to go, similar to a grandparent, to their grandchild. He desperately longs to be with them, but God hasn't allowed him to yet. Verse 11 and 12 say this, 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, Paul certainly saying he wants to give them a gift. But the type of gift that he wants to share with them is pretty particular. It says in your text, spiritual gift. Now, the challenge with using simply that word spiritual gift is we could say that's simply maybe a prayer or maybe a simple word of encouragement. But actually, the spiritual gift that is described in the Greek is a charismata gift. It's an extraordinary gift. It's similar in the construction other spiritual gifts that are described with a charismata word are speaking in tongues, raising from the dead, the gift of healing, the gift of prophecy, extraordinary spiritual gifts. And Paul is saying here that the gift that he wants to share with them is a charismata gift that he doesn't necessarily give us clarity on what it is. But he does say that the result of that gift is that it brings mutual encouragement. It's not just for them to experience and then express that, but it is for both of them to experience it. Perhaps it is a gift that Paul wants to share with them, and then in their expression of it, his experience of that gift grows, and he begins to understand more about that charismata gift now. So that when he's sharing, it's about that mutual encouragement. He's not just saying, I'm coming to give you something. I'm coming to share with you something that will edify both of us and give God more glory. In verse 13, we have this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Quick word about the word brothers there. If you look in your text, it probably is brothers. That is an inclusive use of the word brothers. It is more or less like saying congregation. So it's not gender limited, it's brothers and sisters. But here Paul is saying to the Roman Christian, Christians through this really unique and challenging structure. It's called a disclosure formula. And when it says, at the beginning of verse 13, it says this, I do not want you to be unaware. That's a disclosure formula. It's a specific construction in Greek with a certain group of verbs that you have to have for it to be a disclosure. He's saying what's coming next is really, really important for you to hear. It highlights the importance of it. So with this disclosure formula, he's highlighting his longing to come to Rome. This is something you need to hear. This is something you need to be aware of. Don't be unaware of it. But then he departs when he highlights this from the mutuality of verses 12 and 13. It says they were going to share this charismata gift. It was going to mutually encourage them. He changes that a little bit and talks about this harvest that he wants to have among them, which is really interesting that he would say that. Why would he say that he wants a harvest among them for himself? 
Well, I think there's a couple things going on here that we need to wonder about. What exactly is this harvest? Is it conversions? Remember who is receiving this letter. Would Paul have sent this letter to a group of non-Christians? No, he wouldn't. The people receiving this letter are Christians. So is that harvest among them conversions within the Roman church? Well, there's some challenges there. If that's the only way that we understand the harvest that he is talking about. What else could it be? Well, here's where we get a little bit into who Paul is. Paul is a plan. And the Spirit has given to him this plan, and it hinges on the church in Rome. Now, you can imagine that Rome is central to the geopolitical world of Paul's day. The Roman Empire is the biggest and strongest empire of the day, and it is the one that is developing the most transportation, arts, learning, education, all the stuff that grows out of the Roman Empire is the best and biggest stuff in the world. So it's a pretty pivotal place. And Paul understands, and because he's united with God's Spirit, he feels that the, that the Lord has given him this plan, this plan to go and from the Roman church start the next big missionary movement. In fact, that's exactly what happened. The missionary movement that came out of Rome began to move completely westward. You moved more into Spain and Portugal. You moved north into what is now France, Germany, finally England. In fact, really what Paul is envisioning here happens in what ultimately becomes the Catholic Church. And he sees that this is something that is pivotal to happen in Rome. So when he's talking about this harvest among them, it's this harvest of conversions that go out across the rest of the known world coming out of Rome. That's what happens. The Roman church empowers these missionary journeys to go out into all these different places, and ultimately, it becomes central to the church for literally thousands of years. That's what Paul is talking about in his harvest. His evangelist's heart says, these are the places that God has called us to go, and we can go harvest and see his kingdom bear fruit in these places. And verse 14 and verse 15. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, here we have, uh, it's an artistic use of words. It's that, that polar opposites. There's a word for it. I couldn't remember this week, and I looked it up like twice, but then I forgot to look it up again, and so I forgot. It's, it's the opposites that are used in order to highlight the breadth of what Paul is called to. And the funny part is, is we have evidence that Paul is actually this type of messenger. We have it all over the New Testament. First of all, he is a messenger who? He's a messenger to the academics. He's a messenger to the really, really smart philosophers and educators of his day. How do we know? He goes to Athens, 
And if you remember, he goes and debates with them because he's so troubled by all the gods. He is describing them for, for them, the God with no name. And he debates, which is a huge part of Greek culture. So he, he, he's a, a, an evangelist to the academics, but not just that. He's also an evangelist to the slaves. How do we know that? We know that because he wrote the book of Philemon. And Philemon has in it a character called Onesimus. And an an Onesimus is a slave. Slave who has, uh, he's had some trouble with his master. And Paul is commending him to his master so that his master will release him to Paul's service. So he's with the academics, he's with the slaves. But not only that, he also hangs out and shares the gospel with soldiers. And we know that because he, he, we, we hear of that, those stories in Acts 21, 37 and following. Remember, Paul ultimately ends up um, imprisoned, and then imprisonment, as a, his journey takes him all the way to Rome with who? Soldiers. So he's speaking with them the entire time about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So academics, slaves, soldiers, and who else? Women. We get oftentimes him commending women, thanking women for their service, thanking women for how it is that they have worked within the church. In fact, he highlights even some of them as diakonos, deacons, servants in the church. And these are people that oftentimes in the culture of the day would have been outside of the gospel, outside of people who, uh, that you would teach the gospel to. So when Paul says that he is obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish, it's because we see him doing that all over the place. Verses 16 and 17 say this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For the gospel, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, he's affirming here his desire to be God's messenger. He's not ashamed of the gospel, but that him being unashamed of the gospel doesn't come from Paul's capacity. What does it come from? It comes from that pneuma of the earlier part of the text. Because he is united with God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, his will, his heart is united with the spirit. Because he knows that uniting, he can't be ashamed to speak the gospel because it's not in fact him who's speaking it. It is the spirit who's speaking it out through him. So when he comes to a place and he wonders, is this a place where I should speak of Jesus or teach of Jesus or proclaim to the people about Jesus? And we see him in the book of Acts over and over again getting in trouble because of it. It's because he gets into those moments and because he's united with the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ says, in obedience to me, speak about me, teach about me, proclaim my love for the people. So it's Paul's not being ashamed of the gospel because the Spirit lives within him and in obedience to the Spirit, he will proclaim what he is told to do. And now here we see this word salvation. That word is loaded. 
And certainly we want to say that it is ultimately about being saved, being a, a part of the elect, being, uh, having our heart uh, set aside for God through Jesus Christ and ultimately receive the reward and glory for that. And yes, that is certainly a part of salvation. But Paul uses a specific tense here to talk about salvation. Salvation is. Verse 17, is is the word that we see. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. Not will be, not someday, but is, present tense. Salvation for Paul is not just about a future hope. Salvation for Paul is about a present reality of seeing the kingdom grow, of seeing as he is united with the Spirit of God and proclaiming the gospel unashamedly, that the kingdom of God grows and salvation comes now. Certainly as through a glass darkly, someday face to face. He's saying, I'm part of the salvation of now as the Spirit leads me as I'm united with the Spirit. Now, the so what? How do we take this stuff from Paul and engage it in our lives? Well, first of all, let's go back to that beginning. The Spirit of God is united with followers of Christ. You are never alone wherever you are, because as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are united with him. And as that uniting grows through obedience and, as Paul says in verse 17, by faith, we can trust that that uniting will lead us more deeply into God's will. It's going to be revealed to us in that uniting in that faith that we expressed, in that obedience that we live, in us showing love, the love of Jesus Christ to others out of obedience to him, we will understand his will more fully. And the second part of this is that this pursuit of God that Paul is talking about with the Roman Christians, it's a mutual pursuit. It's a work of the church. And as we learn from and as we work together, the kingdom of God grows now and in the future. Now, here's, this is, I think, really important. There's oftentimes that we do this, and, and I, I, I want to just speak to that. We put a hierarchy on people that we can learn from. We put a hierarchy on people that we uh, should listen to. We had three office bearers up here, and I hope that you are willing to listen to what it is that these men might have to say, because certainly they are called of God, and he has given them the now office to speak his truth into your lives. I think he's given me that place oftentimes too in your lives. But what about others? Who others do you are you mutually encouraged by? And who will you listen to seeking some of that mutual encouragement? Remember, Paul is writing to people, some of whom he disagrees with, some of whom he even sees on a different side of the fence on certain issues. And he is saying, even with you, 
I can be mutually encouraged. Even with you, I can be mutually encouraged. Let me tell you about some people that I learned from in the last couple weeks. Um, I don't know if you saw it this morning, but when we were singing one of the songs, as Katie led us with one of the songs, I had tears in my eyes. And the reason I had tears in my eyes because we sang that song together as a staff earlier this week. I sat right behind where Dale is right now. And we as a staff were gathered in this room. Beth and Katie had asked us if uh, we wanted to worship before a staff meeting. And Beth um, was sometimes on the piano, sometimes not. Katie was playing her guitar and just... We were worshiping for, I don't know, what was an hour and a half, Nick? Something like that. And one of the songs that we sang, we sang on Tuesday morning. And it absolutely cut me to the heart. It was like God just reaching out and speaking to me, which was really interesting. Because later on, during our time of just talking and praying together as staff, Katie Langley, who's all of 21 years old, spoke about a picture that God had given to her in her mind of God reaching out into someone's life and taking a broken heart and redeeming it with a heart of flesh. In that moment, it was my heart. Katie's 21 years old, what we would classify as a very young person. But I'll tell you, God spoke to me in a massive way that I probably will never, ever forget through this young woman who just sought to be obedient to the Spirit of God that is united with her in her heart. I sat with a young man this week, Sidney Johnson. We sat and we talked about his relationship with the woman that he's with. And he simply said to me, you know what? All I'm doing is being faithful to what God has called me to do. And I know I'm not doing it perfect and I know I'm not doing it right, but I see God changing me and I see God changing her. This is a guy who was not a Christian a year and a half ago. He had something to speak to me about how I live my life in faithfulness, in love. I've had that with Henry Sturzma sitting at his kitchen table. I've told you about that before. Yesterday, I showed up here. I work on my sermon a little bit on Saturday morning, getting it ready for Sunday. And who is here when I show up? Mr. Gene Zavenbergen, because Gene never goes home, it seems, sometimes. And I said, Gene, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I had to build some shelves down underneath the basement in this new room that we built so that we can keep things organized and off the floor. And it's funny because I'm sitting there talking with Gene and he says, oh yeah, and I built these shelves over here too and I built these shelves over here too and I built these shelves over here too and by the way, I've changed every single sprinkler head on the whole river property and I've painted three quarters of the walls and I've changed almost all the light bulbs and I've fixed every door and I've done this and I've done that. Here's a man who just simply through what he does shows faithfulness shows the ability to serve with the gifts God has given them. This is what mutual work is. 
It's a 21-year-old girl speaking into a pastor's heart. It's a new Christian reminding a pastor what faithfulness is all about. It's a senior saint who has labored for years to give glory to God. And he sees the fruit because he sees this church growing and ministering, loving Jesus, following Jesus. I was shown Jesus through each one of those people and many, many more. But God be praised, it's because not through my own ability, but through the spirit that lives within me and I'm united with, I could see it. Who is God giving you to mutually encourage? Not just that you might give to them, but that you might also receive from them. As you share God's love together in Christ, what is it that he will share with you just as you might share that with somebody else? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that we are part of a mutual work in the world Thank you that you have given us salvation both for the future and also for the present. We experience and know, O oh God, that your kingdom is alive. Your kingdom is growing now. Salvation has come. And Lord, as we understand that more fully, that right now we are a part of your work in your kingdom, that we can be united with you. And as we're united with you, you call us to that work. You call us to different places where you want to see your kingdom grow, where you want to see things uh, shared, where you want to see grace, where you want to see love and forgiveness, where you want to see hope and light, where you want to see the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and saves, where you want that message shared. Father, may we be united with you in such a way that we know those moments. We know those moments when you call us to speak. We know those moments when you, you call us to stand, call us to scream from the mountaintops, Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, unite us with yourself so that we're never ashamed to do that in obedience to you. And Father, may we together, together learn this. May we be blessed by others who are figuring out how to do this more. May we be blessed by our young people who have so many gifts and abilities and talents to see your kingdom grow. May we be blessed by our senior saints who are faithful in using the gifts that you have given to them. May we be blessed by everyone in between, Lord, that in working together, we learn more about who you are. Sometimes we learn from the least of these. Father, open up our eyes to see so that when those moments come truly, we can see what it is that you are sharing with us. We pray these things all in Christ. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.